This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the Products do what they say they're going to do on the label, and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, 
you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Eric Stolhansky. Now, Eric is part of the Broken Lizard comedy troupe, who are some of the comedic geniuses behind Super Troopers, Beer Fest, and many other productions. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life, growing up with a prosthesis, his journey into comedy, working with Michael Clark Duncan, the speeding ticket that inspired Super Troopers, fostering, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Eric Stolhansky. Enjoy. Well, Eric, I want to say firstly thank you to Ben Duff for connecting us. I always want to thank the people that bring great people into my life. Um, and then secondly, for you, I know you've been extremely busy. We've got all kinds of things that we're going to discuss today, as well as the world of foster parenting, which is another kind of feather in your cap, as it were. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the podcast today. Thanks, James. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in a town called Pensacola, Florida. Oh, you're up just up the road from me then. Well, yeah. a long road, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Floridians. Man, it's a hot week. Um, uh, Pensacola, Florida is known as the aviation of naval, cradle of aviation. Let me get this straight. Start over. Uh, in the movie <laughs> world, we'd say take two. Um, it is the cradle of naval aviation. That is a tongue twister, though. I don't think I could say it 10 times, let alone two. <laughs> Cradle of Naval Aviation. A lot of Navy pilots come out here. So if you want to get Joe, t- if you want to become a top gun pilot, you got to start here and learn how to fly. And then you'd go over to uh, San Diego. Yeah. And you got to learn how to play shirtless volleyball as well. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, let's start at the very beginning of your life's journey. Because I think there's a lot of people out there that don't understand, you know, the the um adaptive athlete element to your life story i think you know, there's many many people that you know still don't understand that under those pants you know are are two two of these legs legs don't seem like the other as it were so let's start at the very very beginning tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings yeah interesting uh i was born in a suburb of minneapolis minnesota in a town called hopkins minnesota small, um, small community, just uh first ring of Minneapolis, uh, really warm community. I still talk about today, man. I just run around the neighborhood, you know, just got home from school and just cruise around kids everywhere. It is a good uh, place to grow up. Uh, nine months of the year was winter. So a lot of winter sports 
And down the road was uh, what I find unique about where I grew up is uh, they used to just take Zambonis and go out to uh, parks in communities and they would just create outdoor skating rinks and they'd put up a warming house. So my winters, which were like nine months of the year, often meant uh, walking down the street, going to a, a skating rink, and then a hockey rink was connected to it, and then hanging out in the warming house. Actually, I went to preschool in a warming house of a skating rink, if that sort of sets the picture of early life. So I grew up basically on skates, and I loved to uh, ski as well as a kid, and in the summers I loved to play baseball. My mother and dad, when uh, I was born, were both teachers. My mother's an English teacher. My dad was a business teacher. He since went on to uh, go into business administration, and he ended up uh, becoming the administrator of a, a large clinic. And uh, he since has retired. With your parents, what has been their perception of the world of education during the kind of length of their careers? Because when we talk about this particular subject, you know, we, there's a lot of chess beaten about being the greatest country in the world. And as a lot of us know now, well, if you're going to choose a kind of a league table for countries in certain areas, education is not one that we are at the top at um, compared to places like Finland, for example. So have they seen an evolution, a devolution of that particular profession in their careers? You know, I've never had an in-depth conversation with that. My father got out and went into business administration when I was pretty young. And then, um, but since my sister uh, became a teacher, so she got her master's in education. Has been, she teaches inner city elementary school, which is uh, a challenge in its own. You know, um, she's got a heart of gold and the tenacity and determination to uh, want to help um, in a challenging environment is uh, very admirable. But she has seen it got to the point where um, a lot of teachers are rotating out. So we haven't necessarily had, it's always been challenging, but now it's getting to the point where some teachers are having burnout. Whereas before they just found it challenging and now they um, just find it too much. And so I don't know the solution to any of that. You know, it's not necessarily my world as much. I sort of talked secondhand about it on holidays. Um, but I hope we can find a solution. I don't know. I, I find it, you know, we talked about I, I foster parenting and just being in in a family of teachers. And the, it, it, I don't know. I have this conversation with parents a lot. But how do you? We kind of live in a world where you're not really allowed to discipline much anymore, or if you do discipline, you get in trouble. So I feel like sort of that authoritarian authoritarian. Um, mantle has been taken away a bit. Would you agree with that in this sense? Yeah, I think, I think yes, for a start. I mean, the, you know, you have to be able to draw the line in the sand. And I actually was talking to someone the other day about this. I started off, you know, being smacked a lot as a kid that as a parent, okay, this is what you do to, to discipline your child. But I had a, interesting transition from sm just simply smacking on the thigh not 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 beating but to when he got to a certain age realizing that teaching him to understand that basically all his actions were either kind or unkind that really worked well in in you know forging him as a human but that takes a lot of time 
with that child. And I think one of the things that's against a lot of people is they're just so damn busy trying to stay afloat with you know, the financial element. I think our schools are not ex- you know, setting our teachers up for failure because these poor children have just been taught to pass standardized tests rather than the holistic child. So I think there are, you know, it's like any any conversation. There are so many different facets and, and it's not complicated. It's just we need to bring them all into the conversation. And then we I think we we have a mental health element that's got multi-generational trauma. So people are like, well, it starts at home. It's like, yeah, but maybe that home is a single mother or a single father doing everything they can just to feed and clothe their child. You know, it's not that simple. So I think we have to have that whole the you know, the community conversation going back to it takes a village. Yeah, really, it's really interesting. It's, it's very, I have a complex answer to that. There's a lot of different, uh, like in my, I know in uh, certain classrooms, it's almost like they dump the kids in there and they expect the teachers just to be the parents. And there's not a lot of follow up at home of the parents being the parents because they are busy or they have a lot going on if they work two jobs, you know. So it's not just uh, putting a blame on anybody, but it, it, classrooms are getting large. So then the teachers are getting overwhelmed. Uh, the kids aren't necessarily disciplined at home or told that they have to listen to the teachers. So the kids will just get up and leave the classrooms and it, and you can't discipline them. Um, or the teacher gets in trouble. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a challenge that I hope somehow will be addressed. I don't know how it's, I can find a solution to it, but there are challenges out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other issue, especially probably I'm assuming with her, the inner city, tends to be that some of the schools that are struggling get less funding because they didn't do well on their testing. You know, and I think Finland does the opposite. You know, if you're an area that's struggling, they give you more resources to bring you up to where everyone else is. And I think we've got that backwards in this country too. Yeah, yeah, I wish I had a better uh, solution or an answer to it. But All right, well then let's talk about you in school. So unbeknownst to a lot of people, you had some physical challenges when you were born. So talk to me about that and then walk me through how if if you were being treated differently affected you in your your formative years sure for anybody who doesn't know i was born without a fibula so i my mother had to make a really tough decision she was 26 years old you can imagine and i was born without a fibula and the doctor sort of gave her the choice either amputate my foot and i would have to be raised on a prosthesis or uh, we could see what happens and I would try to have sort of adaptive shoes and things that might help me grow um, surgeries, different type of orthotics. So, man, I, I, I'm, I can't imagine tr- trying to make that decision at 26 years old to have to amputate your son's foot. You know, obviously without my consent, because what, what's that conversation be at, at 18 months old when I had my uh, foot amputated? Um, but I'm glad she did. You know, it's a really hard decision. I'm sure she consulted with a lot of physicians. And uh, I have my first cast from when I'm 18 months old. It's about this big. And for two years, my mother, dra- after my amputation, dragged me around in a red flyer wagon because I couldn't really walk. And I wasn't fitted with the prosthesis till I was a little, a little bit older. And, uh, and then I, just getting into preschool and then going into kindergarten, I had a prosthesis and I had a wooden leg because growing up prosthetic, prosthetic technology has advanced quite a bit. 
but uh, not even that long ago when I was growing up, I, I was just raised on a hunk of wood. It was just like a chunk of firewood <laughs> we had sitting around on the side of the house and threw a foot on it. Uh, so it was literally made of wood and I had like this rubber foot. And when I would grow, they would just add an inch of wood to my ankle. They would just spin the foot off, add an inch of wood, spin the foot back on. As I grew, that was my, my leg. I could, uh, you could measure my growth from the rings around my ankle. It's like a tree. Um, so, um, you know, as you know, kids can be a little cruel. I think they are sort of uh, naive in their cruelty. That's not necessarily something that they singled me out and like picked on me by choice, but I was an oddity. Um, I was a kid that was walking around school with a fake leg, you know, so there's a lot of curiosity. Uh, my nickname immediately was Woody. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. Kids are uh, um, accepting and they pick on you at the same time. The picking on was, uh, you know, semi-harmless. I mean, what it was was on the playground, they would yank my leg off and throw it over my head uh, playing pickle in the middle with me in the middle trying to catch my own leg. Or one kid would yank my leg off and he would just run on the playground and chase girls with it swinging. <laughs> swinging it after them as he's running the play because I'm standing there on one leg waiting for him to come back and give my leg back. But I don't know if it was like super cruel in the sense that they were trying to be mean to me. It was just this weird oddity. And my, uh, my childhood childhood was very strange. I will leave it at that. And unique. So whereabouts is the amputation? You're below the knee. How far down? Below the knee. Um, the, they, they amputated my foot. And my fibula, I was born without a fibula, which is the growing bone, sort of the growing plate of your lower leg is the fibula. And so I was born without that. So um, I have about six inches below my knee. Uh, I just have a tibia bone, uh, the front leg. Um, and then when they amputated my foot, they tried to bring the heel underneath to give me some padding. So... As you said, the intent may not have been malicious, but I'm sure the effect, the impact was still, you know, felt. So from a mental health stance, when you look back now at yourself as a young boy, what was the impact regardless of the, ten the intent of the children around you? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I mean, I, I was always, uh, it, it, it destroyed my confidence with women. I will tell you that. In the sense that I always felt that uh, it made me feel handicapped. So I always felt like I was maybe uh, perhaps um, less than in a sense. Um, it probably developed my comedy chops a little bit in the sense that I wanted people to like me. So I would learn how to roll with it, uh, treat it as something that was always funny, try to um, use it as a way to create a joke. And so I probably honed my skills uh, on the playground as I was trying to get kids to like me subconsciously. Yeah, the thing that uh, damaged my uh, my uh, self-confidence with women is the fact that they were clearly uninterested in me for about 18 years. So that was, uh, I got that too. But I was very skinny, dry skin, kind of, well, English teeth, so I probably blended to just find them. But um, kind of awkward. <laughs> and so what I found is that, you know, when people would make fun of me, I was, develop kind of like you and i'm not a comedian now by any means but um a sense a, a way of making a better joke about myself than anyone else could and it almost like um disarmed them because i think subconsciously they were like well shit if he can say that about himself he can say that about me too did you find that element within your own kind of journey into comedy 
I think so. I mean, I always ma- I always use my leg to um, as as a method of creating a joke. So I can tell you a story that I've told several times, but the reason I actually um, got into the path with my Broken Lizard comedy group that went on to make Super Troopers and Beer Fest. Um, if you have a minute, I can share the story of how I got into comedy and it was because of my leg. Yeah. So it started back in those years uh, on the playground. But um, I got to college and I um, at Colgate University, I always wanted to be a baseball player, but Colgate was a division one school and turned out that I was a captain of my high school baseball team, but I just wasn't big enough and strong enough to make a division one baseball team. So uh, I didn't make the team and uh, I, I had an interest in comedy films growing up, Animal House, Fletch, uh, Caddyshack and that kind of thing. So I don't know, naively, I walked by the theater one day and I thought, hey, maybe I'll see if I can't try my uh, my act, my an attempt at, uh, you know, my acting, see what my acting chops might be. So I walked by the theater and I saw an audition for a show and I auditioned and I didn't get called back. And then I, I auditioned for like two years and I never got one single call back. But then uh, a friend of mine um, said, well, why don't you sign up for acting class? So I figured if I sign up for acting class, I can at least try to figure out what I'm doing wrong. Um, kind of naive in the fact that it would take me two years to figure this out, but I signed up for acting class. And first thing they make you do is build sets on a Saturday morning. So college, so Saturday morning, I was probably hungover and I, I show up and I have to, uh, uh, build some sets. So I'm hammering away and I look over and there's this kid next to me and he's hammering away and we start having a conversation and he said, Hey, where, you know, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Minneapolis. And he said, Oh, I'm from Chicago. Yeah. My football team's way tougher than yours, but no big deal. And I was like, Oh, here we go <laughs> right off the bat. So uh, we started having uh, this contest of one-upmanship and he starts uh, telling me the bears are much tougher than the Vikings. And so I said, Oh, Chicago, you're so tough. You think you can do this? And I pick up the hammer that we're building sets with and I go, whack. And I smack myself on the ankle and I hand it to him. <laughs> thinking that's it you know it's not really going to go any farther than this but to my surprise he grabs the hammer and he goes oh you want to play this game do you and so he takes a hammer and he goes whack and he smacks himself on the ankle his eyes roll in the back of the head he drops down he's like oh that didn't hurt what else have you got i'm like oh (laughs) you know we're going here so uh i see that we're in this uh theater with the proscenium arch it's uh, made of cement so i said oh maybe if i go kick that cement wall as hard as i can <laughs> there's no way he'll do it right so i run across and i kick this cement wall with my foot as hard as i can thinking that okay that's it he's like yeah, i thought he was just gonna bow down and be like okay okay you're tougher than i am instead i hear screw you minnesota and he comes flying across and he kicked the cement wall straight on as hard as he could and he had birkenstocks again he drops down to the ground Tears coming in his eyes. He's rolling around. He's like, oh, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's crazy. <laughs> guys, they're way tougher than I am. We're just plumb crazy. So uh, I'm like, okay, I got to find something now that's just going to end this because this guy's out of his mind. So I look around and I see that there's a pneumatic staple gun that we're using to build <laughs> sets. And I pick it up and I'm like, there's no way he's going to do this, right? So I take the pneumatic staple gun. I pick it up. and He's like, you don't have the guts. And I was like, oh, yeah, how about this brown clown? And I go, Poof! and I put this brown, I, <laughs> I say brown because Jay's, I'll tell you the story. After. But anyway, <laughs> I put the, um, the staple into my leg and he comes over. He's like, there's no way you really did that, did you? 
And he comes over and inspects and he goes to pull my pants. And sure enough, that staple is in my leg. And he starts sweating and he's like, oh my gosh, did it hurt? I'm like, yeah, you're probably gonna have to take me to the hospital afterwards, man. You don't want to do this. He goes, I don't want to do it. I have to do it. <laughs> so we're in this now for City Pride, right? So he starts finding the area on, he, on his leg where he thinks it's not going to hurt as much. And he starts settling on the back of his leg. He's like, oh, it's kind of fatty back here. It's not going to hurt as much. So he puts a staple gun up to the back of his leg where he thinks it's not going to hurt as much. And he's just about to pull the trigger. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, should I let him do this? And then finally, I'm like, nah, I got a conscious. I got a conscious. I said, stop, 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 man. Are you out of your mind? My This leg's made of wood. And I pull my leg off and I show him. And I thought he was going to kill me. But instead, he breaks up laughing. And uh, and he reaches out his hand. He's like, oh, man, that's ridiculous. He's like, thank you for not letting me do that. But hey, my name is Jay, Jay Chandler Seiko. So uh, Jay uh, uh, and I became best friends after that. We became college roommates. And he's like, hey, man, you got to come try out for this uh, comedy group I'm putting together at school. And uh, and so that was my intro, my start into uh, my real, the reason I am now 30 years later in a comedy group was all because of that day. But it was just using my leg um, as a method of, I don't know, trying to be funny. You know, I, it turned out to be a longer, like drawn out, funny little episode that he and I had uh, that day. But it was my way of trying to use it as a, a, way, a method of levity. That reminds me of a story. I had a police officer who was hit by a car, lost his leg and actually went back to the service. Amazing. But he said it comes in handy sometimes. Like if someone tries to slam a door, I just put my foot in the way. If there's a, if there's a rabid <laughs> yeah. dog, I just stick my foot in their mouth. I was like, yes. huh, there you go. <laughs> it's very true. If there's a dog that's like crazy, you can stick your foot in. There's so many things that you can use it as a, a battering ram, a putter, if you uh, can't find one in your golf bag. <laughs> a cup holder, you can take it off and on the beach and you can use it as a cup holder. There we go. Um but yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a, a method of coping, I guess. But it it has its positives and its drawbacks, just as uh, all of us. Um, you know, I'm I've been working on a book, and when I do get my title, it's uh, everyone has a wooden leg. So uh, even though I I might have a prosthetic body part, everybody and you talk about you know your challenges with women growing up, whatever. But like we all have our sort of wooden legs, whatever that may be. It might be mental, emotional, physical, but everybody has something, which I find interesting when we get a chance to go around the world and talk to people. Doesn't matter where you are, everyone's got something. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny, we talk about acting and we'll, we'll get into your journey in a minute, but I went to drama school following a girl and discovered that I am probably the world's worst actor, apart from people that were part of Backdraft too. But aside from that, <laughs> <laughs> the I'm just so bad, but I found stage combat and ended up becoming a stuntman. So it was like, okay, when I'm moving and my mouth is wow. closed, I can act. The moment I, I have to that. stand still and say words, then yeah, I'm I'm as wooden as your leg, basically. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to get I want to move forward on that. But before we do, I think it's an interesting thing that needs to be told. A lot of people that have been on the show who had some sort of you know physical challenge, you know, compared to most of the people around them, more often than not, the parents have an element of. You, you need to learn how to do this. We're not going to, you know, wrap you in bubble wrap and, and, you know, consider you special. 
So how did that factor in? Because you talked about playing baseball in high, excuse me, baseball in high school and skiing and skating. So walk me through the kind of philosophy that you grew up in with your parents and how you were able to adapt way before the kind of adaptive athlete movement really took hold. Yeah, it's um, I compare it. Do you ever heard the story of the boy, boy and the butterfly? It sounds familiar, but I can't remember it specifically. No book. Um, the boy, I think it's the boy. He opens up the um, cocoon for the butterfly, and it dies. But the idea is that it needs that struggle to survive, right? So it's that we often try to shield people from the struggle, but it's that struggle that really creates the life, right? So oftentimes we think we're being helpful by stopping people from having to struggle. But it's that idea of struggle that we need. So growing up, you know, my parents were supportive and I wanted to go out and do these things that somebody with one leg might be too challenging for them. Like um, I started playing football and ultimately my parents were like, football might not be the best sport because if you really hurt your other leg, then you can't walk. So baseball for me was a good sport because it was sort of non-contact. It was like trying to hit a pitch and then running and you're not really getting tackled. So, um, and then skiing to me was something I was really interested in. And the, the thing I find interesting about skiing was to me, it's sort of what formed my life lesson when I look back on it was one day I wanted to go on the mountain and my mom and dad were very supportive, which I think is really important. Like I said, to help with the struggle, they said, sure, let's go try it, right? So went out to Minnesota, which the mountains aren't too big. They're sort of hills, but um, they got me outriggers. You know, like you lean down on your hands and you have two skis. You have an outrigger on each arm. And on the end of that are little skis at the end of a pole. No, it's like crutches with skis on. Yes, they're like crutches with skis on it, right? And I tried one run and I said, you know, I was pretty young. I said, I don't want to ski with these. I don't, I don't know. I felt, I don't know. It's, I, I, res, I respect anyone that uses them. It's great because you get to go outside and go on the mountain and feel the wind in your face and all that kind of stuff. But I was like, I want to try skiing on just two skis. I want to be just like everyone else that's skiing out there. And my mom and dad were like, but it's really hard. I mean, you only have one leg and one's wood. <laughs> and I was like, I know, but I want to try it. And they're like, let's try it. They're like, you're going to fall down. I mean, you're going to fall down a lot. And I was like, okay. And I did, man. I <laughs> I remember just like spending the whole day just like wah, poof, wiping out, you know, trying to find the balance. I couldn't turn. I don't have an ankle. You know, it was a mess. You know, I, I fell down a lot over and over and over again. And then finally, my runs got a little longer and then a little longer. And by the time, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks, maybe a month went by, I was able to go from the top of the hill, the mountain, and ski all the way down to the bottom. And then by the time I got in college or even high school, I guess I'd go on ski trips out to Colorado with my mom and dad in high school. I was skiing double diamonds in Colorado. But it's that struggle that we have to put ourselves through sometime that is always hard. And sometimes we don't want to do it to um, find the life that we have in each one of us. So how did you do it as far as the skiing? Was it a, a single ski and the other leg was balanced or did you have a prosthesis that allowed you to use a second ski? I just uh, put two skis on just like anyone, two ski boots, two skis, and I just figured it out. It's it's hard. 
I mean, to this day, when I go skiing, it's hard. I don't, you know, I don't, I can't, I, I don't have a right ankle. So when I want to stop, it's the same as skiing, uh, skating. I had to figure it out. I can't stop going to the right, but I can stop really easily going to the left. So if I have to turn around when I'm skating and I like playing hockey, I have to go left and do a 180 and flip the other way. But I did it so many times I could do it as fast as anyone that would stop skating on the to the right. Amazing. What? It's just adaptive. Yeah, and as I was saying, this is an environment when, and we're going to talk about disabled Americans and uh, disabled American veterans in a while, but through CrossFit, which we'll also talk about in a moment, um, you know, I've watched the adaptive community just explode. And obviously that lines up with, you know, the two wars that we were in. But back then, before that, I mean, there wasn't the prostheses that were around. There weren't these inspirational, you know, Instagram posts of all these other adaptive athletes overcoming this. So this, I'm assuming you were probably somewhat alone in this journey. When I grew up, I never, I don't, I'm trying to remember the first time I ever met another person with a prosthetic. It wasn't in Minnesota that I remember anybody. When I was out there skiing or playing sports, I was the only kid out there with a prosthetic. I mean, for it's, sure. It's amazing. Well, I know in one of the interviews that I read, uh, it's the only thing I, I, I heard this mentioned, uh, there was a woman that came to speak, a model named Ivy. So talk to me about her and, and the impact that had on, on your own journey. Yeah, I think that was one of the first times I really even experienced someone else with a prosthetic. I went to a Episcopalian high school in Minneapolis called Breck, and we would have um, chapel. One thing, one day a week, we had all school chapel, and they'd bring in speakers. And one day, they brought in this woman named Ivy, who was a speaker. And uh, I think it was Cancer Awareness Month, so she got up and she was talking about um, surviving cancer. But she had a prosthetic, and she was a model out of New York. So she was a very successful model. And when you saw the photographs or her on stage, you didn't even notice that she had a prosthetic. And that was the first time I feel that I was sort of like kind of blown away. I never really had anyone to talk to about it. I never had any role models. And I, I never spoke to Ivy or anything. But when she came and talked that day at the school, I felt like I may be able to do something larger than just be able to play baseball in my community. It made me realize that it's you can do things that are bigger than yourself. I mean, she did something that you're not supposed to be able to do. Like, you're not supposed to be a model and only have one leg. And to me, it's like, oh, wow, that it just opened up the world to me. And I, and I love that idea of dreaming big. And when I sort of talk about mindset or go around and talk to people, the idea that oftentimes we, there are things that we can do that we don't think we can do. And for me, that was the first person that sort of opened the world to me in that way. I don't know if there's any, there are, are people now, but are there people out there? I know a buddy of mine that Kurt that does it. He's sort of an amputee actor as well, but he's sort of newer in the last couple of years. But there aren't many people out there making movies or comedies that only have one leg. No, no. And unless they need an extra for some war movie or something and they're lying there, you know covered in the moulage and that's the thing we can we can talk about that if you want but i never wanted to tell anyone i had one leg because i never wanted to get typecast as only being able to play someone who came back who got their leg blown off in a war mm -hmm. yeah um even gary sinise you know did it digitally in forrest gump you know they just it was i don't know people can always they don't think you can act or they think he are only can typecast you in a certain way 
I got exposed to the Hollywood typecasting. Um, I was working for a, as a firefighter in Anaheim. My ex was doing extra work, and she's like, hey, they're looking for real firefighters for this film Oliver Stone's doing. And so I you know, obviously had an acting background by that point and stunts and things, so I gathered a whole bunch of people. I'm like, hey, this is going on, and sent it to the casting director, and she's like, that's great. And I was like, well, okay, so... Do you know? Am I in this group? And she's like, "Well, the problem is you look too Californian." I'm like, "What the fuck are you talking about? I'm English." (laughs) But she, in her mind, and you think casting people would be open-minded and imaginative and artistic, but no, unless you basically look like an Italian or an Irishman, that Mm -hmm. that was it. And we're talking about way back, but basically silhouettes in this movie. And so I had to like persuade her. No, I'm. You know, I brought you all these people. I'm going to be going as well. But yeah, I, I just imagined that. You know. The same kind of artistic imagery that would be involved in creating a film that someone in casting would have that open-mindedness because an actor can be a million things or a chameleon. But no, it was, it was the opposite. They were caricaturing so many people. So I can see, you know, oh, you're an amputee. Beautiful. We're doing a pirate movie next year. If you want to come <laughs> audition exactly. for that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't know if it's any different yet, but yeah. All right. Well, then. You're in high school before you get to the stapler war of college. At that point, what are your career aspirations? Are you thinking the arts or is there something else in your mind? Not really at that point. No, I, I had sort of had dabbled at a couple. Um, you know, I took acting classes and stuff like that in, in high school a little bit. I enjoyed some of it, but it wasn't it was not on my mind, no, at all. No, it wasn't until Jay <laughs> did that. Jay put together a sketch comedy group in college and we had a good time. I mean, it was never a, a career aspiration. And after we graduated college, we really had a good time doing it. Um, I had moved back to Minneapolis. I got a call later that summer and Jay said, hey, I think we're putting together a comedy group. We're thinking about putting back together the comedy group that was at school. Uh, would you have any interest in coming out to New York City? And really, it was only a way of postponing life. I didn't have a job. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And I was like, that was fun. And um, I went out and I was like, I don't have anywhere to stay. I don't have any money. Jay's like, yeah, I crashed my floor. So he had a feather bed. He would take the feather bed off his bed, throw on the floor. I'd sleep on the floor. Soder came out from Colorado. He slept on a Naga couch in the living room. We had like eight guys in an apartment. I mean, I don't know, there was no career aspirations. It was just kind of putting off life and really um, enjoying it at the time. Now, were you at just regular college or were you at drama college before that drama school? No, we were at a regular school. It was liberal arts. We all, none of us major, they didn't even have a major in theater or acting. We just, history, English, Lemmy, I think was art, political science, you know, just liberal arts stuff. So, so many people think that success is overnight. Um, you know, I know you've been asked this in other interviews as well, but I think it's an important thing. When you really dive into a lot of people's career, most of the successful ones, you're like, oh, okay, now I see them you know, as an eight-year-old in this movie. Maybe they have been doing this for a long time. Right. Walk me through the grind and all the, all the um, disappointments or all the no's that you got before you know, whatever the first kind of turning point was for the group. Man, how much time you got? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I've been listening to this Beatles podcast and uh, it reminds me of them when they were just, just hammering it out at Hamburg, you know, just getting their 10,000 hours playing clubs every night for hours and hours and hours and hours. We started out performing in Greenwich Village in a cabaret, cabaret bar. 
where downstairs, I mean, it was kind of, you know, as that, let's see, it was like uh, early 90s and stand up comedy was very popular in New York City. So any club basically just had a really small stage and one microphone. And we were trying to be a sketch comedy group, which was a little bit rare. We loved Monty Python and we loved Kids in the Hall. And, but there weren't that many places to have like a bunch of people put on a show. I mean, we were like eight people at the time with costumes. We had to lug a television, a VHS and put on like a show at a comedy club. And it was very unusual. So the only place that we could find to really do this was a place called the duplex in uh, Greenwich village. And downstairs was the piano where people would be in drag and singing. And you'd have to go up these back stairs into this room that sat maybe 30, 40 people. And they had a stage, but the back, the changing stage was like four, four or five steps. That was a fire escape. And that's where we would have to have eight people in change costumes. And they had a piano on stage where we had a musician play. And then we'd have to lug a television in there and we'd have to shoot videos, lug a television, hook up a VHS, shoot videos, edit them, put them on a tape and then play them with the remote control. I mean, obviously today everyone has like YouTube or you can just shoot something and put it out in the world, Instagram or social media, but we'd have to bring an audience to a theater, uh, show them our videos. And we made the short videos so we could change costumes in between sketches. Um, It was a tremendous amount of work to do this. And we would uh, do a show for three months. We'd take off a couple months to write a new show and then we'd do another show. And we did this for about five years in New York city. Uh, the night, like let's say we had a show Friday night, we'd have to go get Jay. Jay was the only one that had a car, kept in a parking garage. You'd have to go get the car, drive into crowded Greenwich Village, lug a gigantic television down three flights of stairs, VHS, put it in his car, drive it to the club, haul it through a cabaret bar <laughs> up the stairs, plug it in. And then afterwards, you after the show's over, you'd have to do the opposite, pull a car into crowded Greenwich Village. I mean, it was so much work. And the reason I tell that story is we we slugged it out for, man, I don't know, five, six years. Everyone thinks when Super Troopers came out, like, where did these guys come from? But the reality were we were kind of doing what the Beatles did early on when they were in Germany was just getting our 10,000 hours um, for years and years and years. I mean, people thought that we came out of nowhere, but we worked really, really hard um, trying to develop our comedy skills and more importantly, our writing skills. Um, and then one day we were in New York city and, um, we saw these sort of independent films that were starting to come around. It was clerks, um, Richard Rodriguez, El Mariachi, Reservoir Dogs. And a lot of these movies were going to this thing called the Sundance film festival. And they were getting in theaters that we were going to watch. And they were really entertaining, great movies that were made for low budgets. So we said, well, maybe we can take some of the skills that we learned doing sketch comedy and we can adapt them into a, a feature because we thought, well, after five years of uh, actually losing money, putting on these shows in Greenwich Village, like how could we ever try to make a career of this? You know, we've been now dedicated about five years of our lives after coming out of college and our parents were all like, seriously, what are you guys going to do with your life? Like Kevin, who plays Farber and Super Troopers, went to law school during this time. I put myself through acting school in New York, but it was sort of this idea of like, what what what's next from our parents right so we um we thought well wow these guys are making films and they're getting them up on the screen and we loved monty python growing up what if we started writing and taking some of these skills that we learned from doing all this sketch comedy um wrote a script that had a narrative 
but sort of had these sketch elements to it with a narrative that tied it all through. And we shot a film and tried to go to Sundance Film with it, film festival with it. So we made this movie called Puddle Cruiser, uh, wrote it, you know, asked everyone that we knew as a favor to come in. Like Kevin's brother was a locations manager. His other brother was a grip. Um, any favor that we could get to shoot a feature film and coincidentally lucky enough, we got into the Sundance Film Festival with this movie called Puddle Cruiser. And it was our stepping stone. We didn't get into theaters, but it showed people that we sort of had the ability to put together a feature film and sort of the tenacity, determination to uh, grind it out, make an independent film uh, that we were able to raise funding to then make Super Troopers. So Super Troopers was our second independent film that we made. And then we sold it to Fox Searchlight at the Sundance Film Festival, but that was 10 years after we first started. So kind of a long story, I apologize, but uh, it it's funny when you think someone's an overnight success, how much work they had to put into it. Absolutely. Uh, Super Troopers, funny enough, became, I would say, hands down, one of the top firehouse movies as well. And, you know, you'll hear people quoting it all the time. Again, I read just in a random article that there was a speeding ticket that was at the genesis of that. So what's the backstory of Super Troopers <laughs> and that theme? Yeah, we uh, uh, we, were, we used to have to spend a lot of time together in a car. The five of us, we had, like, we had the one car and Sometimes we get a comedy show outside of the city. We would all pile into one car together. And while that's where a lot of just kind of comedy and the sketches came all from that experience of being in that one car. And then one day we're cruising along and uh, we get a Jay is his car. So he got pulled over for speeding and he's like, Oh man, I'm gonna tell this guy off. Right. We're like, yeah, let's see if you got the guts. Right. And the guy comes up and Jay's like, oh, yes, sir. Of course, sir. Yeah, whatever you need, sir. Right. And we laugh as he leaves. <laughs> and we're like, oh, these cops have so much power. Right. It's just they. we just thought it was so, I mean, they really do have just so much power when they come up to that window. And they're like, but they're just normal guys, just like anybody else. Right. I mean, they're just like brothers or uncles or we all have uh, friends who are cops. Right. And then we thought, well, what if they're like us, where we love to just joke around and laugh and have a good time that. If you realize and knew you kind of had that power when you go up to a window and you know these guys, you're like, these guys are smoking pot, right? Let's go mess with them. And that was kind of the idea um, for the kind of the genesis, the original kernel of Super Troopers. But like the bear incident, like the bear, uh, I can swear in here, right? Yeah, I just did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the one sketch I, I played, the bear fucker in the movie and we're cruising along in the same car and we're on this long stretch of highway and you have woods everywhere. I'm like, what would happen if you looked over and you saw someone having sex with a bear over there? Uh, they're like, and you call that into the police station and they got that call. Like, would they come out and investigate if they came out and investigate and they saw someone's actually having sex with a bear in the woods? Like, what would they say to them? Right. So it's just these funny things that were happening in the car at the time as we were cruising around. So you write that stuff down and then you can turn it into a scene. Like I said, you kind of take these sketches and you put a little narrative through it, solving a crime. And, uh, but a lot of, a lot of those ideas came out of that experience of being five of us together in, in small spaces. So there's so many troops out there. I mean, I, like I said, through my, uh, stunt world journey, I've met obviously a lot of people that are on the comedy side as well. What was it about the the uh, synergy between you guys that worked when maybe some others don't? It's not being you know negative towards them. What was that magic thing that you think that you guys had in the dynamic of your troop? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly. I I know a lot of people will come up and say it just feels like you guys are friends, and that it feels like you guys like I, I've had some people come up and say, "Is that whole movie improvised?" I'm like, "Are you kidding me? No way, man! We we spent years writing that and crafting it and writing 25 drafts. It's flattering when someone says that because we spent so much time writing every single word, and when we shot it, I don't know if anything is improvised in Super Troopers, but the fact that somebody might think that. Uh, makes it feel like we had a natural delivery. And that probably comes from years and years and years of spending uh, hours together in closed spaces. Well, so you talked about going to drama school. Um, I got stuck in that vicious circle when I came out where I did a showcase. This agent was like, it was actually William Morris. They're like, we like what you, you know, because I did something very physical versus the usual monologue. And I, like we sure. do, but that's someone else's sure. area. So, call me when you have a role. And I'm like, oh, okay, sweet. I'll call you when I have a role. Unbeknownst to me, you need an agent to get a role and you need a role <laughs> right. to get an agent. And so yeah. I literally was in this revolving door until I just gave up. Um, with you, I mean, obviously you're doing this on the side. Did you jump into the whole actor audition scene at the same time? Um, not so much at that time. I was lucky. I, I started working with it for a casting director in New York and going to showcases and just trying to take in as much as I could. I tried to see a lot of plays in New York. But the comedy thing that we were doing at the time was very time consuming because I'd have to wait tables, you know, of course, during the day. So I. Well, you're an actor. Oh. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So I, my job for 10 years was uh, waiting tables versus being an actor. Uh, we would do comedy on weekends for no money. Uh, also, we could work single and double shifts and brunches uh, during the week. So, yeah, I, I wasn't, uh, like you said, you know, until you get, I wasn't, I didn't get an agent until we had made Puddle Cruiser and it went to Sundance. And we actually went to the Hampton Film, film Festival with Puddle Cruiser and it, and it won first place at that film festival. And it was only then that I, we got an agent, you know, so we kind of had to create something. It's that catch 22 you're talking about. You can't get a part until you have an agent, but you can't get an agent until you get a part. So we had to create that part by making independent film. And then highlighting uh, what sort of what we could do. I played this kind of out there character named Freaky Reeky in our first movie called Puddle Cruiser. And it wasn't until sort of creating that, selling the film that I was able to get an agent. And then start auditioning after that. Well, when you think of that, you think of Rocky or Sling Blade, you know, where people create their own you know, yeah. production. And when you, Definitely. again, reverse engineer to your early life, overcoming the adaptation that you had to make mm -hmm. physically, here you are now, and you know, and I was in this revolving door, and, and you'd already figured out a way. Okay, well, if we, you know, create this production, then we kind of circumnavigate that element, and ultimately, we'll probably have people knocking on our door. So, you know, what after you make Super Troopers, kind of walk me through the next few years. I, I was talking to a friend who was on Band of Brothers, and I didn't realize that took about ten years to really take off. Yeah, he was the medic in it. Um, he was doing like dinner theater before he got that gig. So again, a lot of grinding, but. Was it an immediate upswing or was did it take some time to gain momentum, become the cult that it, it became? Took a long time. I mean, Super Troopers did okay in the box office, but it wasn't really until people started passing a DVD around. And so you can imagine how long that was after the movie came out. Um, fortunately, Fox Searchlight that distributed Super Troopers was interested in trying to make a follow-up project after that. So we... Um, we had spent a lot of time being in the police uniform promoting and you know how long it takes to shoot something and be so we were in that cop uniform for so long we we wanted to try something different we were a sketch comedy group and we had done a lot of different characters so we did a movie called club dread afterwards 
fortunately the studio was interested, but we spent a lot of time working on them with that. Um, so that was, a that was a nice, uh, change of pace, having to make two independent films and go sell it yourself at Sundance. Um, so it was nice to finally have a, our first studio film, which was club dread, which was our third film that we did together as a comedy group. Um, that was, um, enjoyable shooting that bill paxton came on mc ganey um we had a really good time uh, Brittany daniel um it opened up against the passion of christ which uh was a tough weekend another knee slapper (laughs) (laughs) two comedies in the same weekend um so they i mean churches just bought out theaters and they just bust people in it was a really interesting weekend to open a, a movie um and that didn't do, I think people were expecting more super troopers. They weren't trying, they weren't really expecting like a comedy horror film was really sort of against type for us. Uh, so commercially it didn't do very well. Um, and then after that, we ended up making, um, it's funny after that, Adam Sandler called us in one day and said, Hey, when saw super troopers in the movie theater, I'd like to meet you guys that you guys kind of make films kind of like I do. I, I like to um, surround myself with my friends and uh, we kind of work together as a group and he called us in the office and we and he was a really nice guy and he said um maybe i could help you know what are you guys working on we said well we wrote this script called beer fest and so we actually took it out with adam and his company around uh he had a deal at uh, sony at the time and um and they were sort of interested but we got a call from warner brothers saying that they were interested in making it so we ended up making a uh, beer fest after club dread so it was uh it became a little easier um than having to slog it out raise your own money and make movie independently so we made the next movie club dread with searchlight pictures and then we made uh, warner brothers we went to warner brothers and made beer fest and then the writer strike happened so we pulled we weren't sure how long that was going to go so we grabbed a script off the shelf since we weren't allowed to write anymore or one that was finished and we went out and independently made a movie called um slam and salmon before then going back and making super troopers 2 which is a whole possible episode and tenacity and determination because we crowdfunded that movie we went back to search like pictures and they weren't sure if the audience for super troopers was still there after 20 years like i said we wanted to try different characters and different roles and stuff like that so we probably could have made a sequel right away but we waited 18 years and they were like i don't know if the audience is still here there after 18 years so we turned to crowdfunding and we weren't quite sure how it would work if anybody would want to um try i mean we didn't know if anybody was going to it'd be interested in backing us in super troopers too. So the first day we were very surprised. We ended up reaching our goal in 24 hours. I think really, I think we got our goal for, and then we crowdfunded it and then we made super troopers too. Now, how was that received? Cause I mean, obviously when you make something so iconic, it's going to be extremely hard to have the exact same impact, especially if you're doing it 20 years later. What was it? Not so much from, you know, the naysayers or critics, but overall for you guys, as far as satisfaction and impact on the audience, the, the true the true audience that you were trying to reach. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I you hear both sides. You hear positive and you hear negative. Um, Paul and I, we played Foster. We were at a Comic-Con last week up in Cincinnati, and we heard a lot of people that came up and said, hey, you know, you can never match the original. And then we heard a lot of people that came up and said, we thought you guys picked it up right where it left off. So it's it's both. It's, uh, it's a complex world out there. So thank you. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it. And I, I see on IMDb, 
it says Super Troopers 3. Is that actually a, a real potential now or is it just up in the air? Yeah, no, it's real potential. The nice thing about Super Troopers 2 is it was uh, commercially successful um, in the box office, at least enough for the studio to be interested in realizing, well, there really is an audience for this. Uh, let's develop a third. So we are currently writing it. And actually tonight I have a, a Zoom meeting with all five guys to try to um, get... We we are three or four drafts in. We've uh, completed many drafts and we just keep trying to plug away. Like Super Troopers, at the original, I think we did like 20 to 22 drafts. So we like to write and write and write and write. So we're, we're it's good right now. I, I love it where it is right now, but we'll just keep plugging away and making it better. Brilliant. Now you talked about Adam Sandler and some of the other actors that you've worked with so far. One that struck me when I looked at, I think it was IMDb or one of those ones, um, was that you worked with Michael Clark Duncan. Now, yeah. the reason that's pertinent to me is when I talk about mental health in, especially in the first responder profession, there to me is no better metaphor than his character in the Green Mile taking on all that trauma and all that pain from people. And by not offsetting it, ultimately it sends him, you know, which is a good thing, sends him to heaven, but, you know, can also be a metaphor for maybe not being able to cope. So what was he like? I mean, obviously he's, he's passed away now. So talk to me about working with him. Michael, yeah. I mean, it was a real honor to be able to work with uh, Academy Award winner, nominee. I'm trying to remember if he won. Nominee? One? Uh, great actor. Uh, you know, he loved to improvise, which was a lot of fun. By the time we got to sort of Slam and Sam and we were improvising a lot more than they originally had with Super Troopers. And uh, there were times when, and Kevin was directing this one, where he would do what was written and then he would just start going off. And Kevin would be like, just let the camera roll. And so a lot of stuff that ended up being in the movie was stuff that he would make up. So he was, he was a really fun guy. He was, um, it was sad that we lost him. He had a, a congenital heart condition and he passed away. Um, but even coming into shooting Slime and Salmon, he had lost a hundred pounds from the green mile and he still was twice the size of all of us. Uh, a very large, strong man, great stories from growing up. Talk about overcoming adversity. You know, he came from a, challenging upbringing and uh, went on to become an academy award nominee he, did he win for green mile or he was nominated i, I think it's remember. irrelevant i mean I, i've always talked about this about i'm always kind of perturbed not perturbed but just confused of the concept of being called the best picture the best actor because it's art so i was i think it's one of the best performances you know the whole film one of the most powerful dramas has ever been filmed so it doesn't to me it doesn't matter if he won or not yeah me neither it doesn't matter to me whatsoever i was just um semantics thing, you know you get critics coming hey he didn't win but i'm like doesn't not that it matters at all i mean he was great in it um and so i don't know it's an honor to be able to work with him and um he was fun he was he had a great great stories he was a prankster he was he kind of fit in with us he was pranksters his pranksters were he would he was were a little more serious he would um i'm trying to uh he, he used to love to play his game could you defend yourself <laughs> like he would go to meetings and he'd lean across the table. If I would jump across the table right now, could you defend yourself? Like, well, Michael, no, I don't think I could. You would have me by 200 pounds. I think you'd have my <laughs> I don't know. He was, uh, he had a lot of, uh, and we actually, you know, we, the original character was sort of based on a Mike Tyson. And it's supposed to be a heavyweight champion. That's uh, so unpredictable that when he comes into work where you're waiting tables, if he owned the restaurant, you wouldn't know if he was going to punch you that day or make you laugh or adopt you as a kid. Like he just, you didn't know what his behavior was going to be kind of based on sort of a Mike Tyson character. And we're like, you know, Michael Clark Duncan had uh, such dramatic chops. We were like, 
but you know, do you think he could handle this comedy script? Cause it was a lot of dialogue. So we talked to Adam McKay and he's like, Oh yeah, he's, he's great. That scene when uh, he's in, with Will Ferrell and Will Ferrell's in the wheelchair and in Talladega nights and Will Ferrell stabs himself in the leg with a knife. And then he's uh, Michael Clark Duncan starts yelling, don't you put that on me, Ricky Bobby. Don't you put that on me. Adam was saying there's no real script. They were just a lot of improvising that. And he said, Michael completely could hold his own. So we felt confident after that, uh, bringing him on. And he was terrific. Amazing. Yeah. It's, it's funny with the, with the awards shows, I remember with the Oscars, there was one year where it seemed to be like the, everyone was African American winning and Denzel Washington won it for training day. And I'm like, so this is the guy I did Malcolm X and cry freedom. And he wins an award for training day. You know, I think that that's to me why the, some of these award ceremonies are so bogus is some of these people have done so much better, you know, roles and been part of such incredible productions, but it wasn't flavor of the day so that they didn't win it that time. So, and in the stunt world, there are no Oscars for stunt people, which is, which is mind blowing because these, especially in these modern, you know, uh, uh, action films, usually they're doing 80% of the work. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing as someone that's disconnected from that, that world looking in going, Hmm. Can you really say that was the best actor when all these other phenomenal, you know, productions are going on? That's interesting. Yeah. You have an interesting perspective on it. Yeah. Just disconnected. Being, Being a horrible actor, I can be objective. <laughs> <laughs> it does take a village to try to get a performance together, though. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, shifting away from the, I guess, performance world for a moment. Talk to me about how you came across P90X and Tony Horton and then walk me through your involvement and the unveiling of the leg during that that uh, journey that you were on. Yeah, that was an interesting chapter in my life. Um, it's still kind of it's still going under 100%. I still work with Tony and have a lot of respect for Tony Horton and still currently work with him. One day I was at a gym. I used to go to the world gym in Santa Monica and uh, I, I was trying to stay in shape. I think it was club dread. Cause I knew we were going to be down in Mexico and probably might require some scenes without a shirt or something. So I was trying to exercise and work hard and right at, right. There's a bulletin board there and it had a flyer that said, come be part of the hardest thing that you've ever done in your life, mentally, physically, emotionally. And you have to understand back in the, this was probably, I don't know, 15, somewhere between 15, 16, 17 years ago, as you know, um, the idea of extreme fitness didn't really exist. There were, you know, Beachbody had Power 90 or something like that, but it was more Jane Fonda, Richard Simmons, Cheryl Teagues. I mean, the idea of like home fitness videos were just for people to do like aerobics. But this company, Beachbody, wanted to create something called P90X, where somebody who was an athlete could do it uh, so they could be like a really good like soccer player or um basketball player anything that was like a weekend warrior but somebody really wanted to step up their game and they thought it was going to be kind of like a little niche video that a s small select group of people would do so i saw this in a flyer and it said if you come be part of the test group uh you can work out for 90 days but you just have to commit to it you have to commit to be there for 90 days follow the food plan you know and i said well maybe this is a great way to get training i was a as you know a broke actor uh barely squeaking by. And so I said, Hey, free trainer, you know, here we go. Get in shape for the film. So I sign up and I go and I was like, damn, this is hard. You know, and I did it for a while. And after a while I was starting to get a little more confidence because it was really hard, plyometrics, yoga, all this stuff I'd never done before. 
and it was a great workout. And then one day, and I'd always go, and Tony will tell the story. He's like, I still Hansky used to be in the same spot. You know, we all kind of are in the same spot when we do things. We go to a class or something, always in the same spot. He's like, every day I'd look down the left, and there you were, this kind of undescript kid just sitting on there. And you always had sweatpants on. I don't know why you always had sweatpants on. And then one day you show up and you're wearing shorts. And like everyone in the class, like look over and like, what the hell is that? And uh, and I I just kind of had gained enough confidence after like 60 days of doing these really hard workouts and balancing routines and yoga and all kind of things. I said, screw it, man. I'm going to wear shorts one day. And I showed up and people were kind of like, did a double take, but everybody was cool. And I don't know, it gave me kind of a new self-confidence of uh, being able to do harder workouts than I ever thought that I could, especially with my prosthetic. And it was a great workout. And I really thought it was very genuine and authentic and uh, really the real deal. And by the time we finished that 90 days, Tony and I kind of become pals. And he said, hey, Stolhansky, uh, I want you to be in the plyometrics routine. Would you do it? I thought about it for a second. I, no, no way. I'm not going to do it. He's like, I was like, you want me to like in shorts? No, I'm no, th- no, thanks. He's like, come on, come on. You got to do it. I was like, I don't want to do it. Like, why not? He's like, well, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't, I think I mentioned before is I, I'm trying not, I don't want anyone to like pigeonhole me. Like, I don't really want to go out into the world, especially in a video in shorts, because then everyone's going to just look at me as the guy with one leg. I'd rather be the guy that can go do these broken lizard rolls and nobody can tell the difference and pigeonhole me and say, oh, that guy can only play certain parts. I just want to, I just want someone to think of me as a, just a normal actor and a comedian that they don't even think of and talk about it. And he's like, well, maybe what, maybe you're running away from something. Maybe you're hiding something that you don't need to be hiding. Like if you were to do this exercise, there are people that struggle with diabetes mental health, uh, just lack of motivation, certain things where they'll be like, that dude's doing these exercises with one leg. I got to get off the couch and get up, get up there and do it too. So I was like, ah, that's kind of shifted my perspective on realizing that maybe something that I've kind of been hiding from my whole life was something that I could use as something that's positive, which I never really kind of had thought of it in that direct way before. So I said, all right. All right, man. I'll do your P90X, Tony Horton. Damn you. <laughs> so I did another 10 days of workout and we did about hundred days. And then we filmed the video Had no cuts or anything. It was just a whole 60 minutes, I believe of plyometrics, which is German skiing technique, as you know, and bouncing and skipping and jumping and hopping. And, and it's brutal, super hard, but we got on video and at first it didn't really take off. And then people started posting before and after pictures and seeing really how um, great of a workout P90X was that it just took off and it became one of the top exercise videos in America for a long time. And now it almost seems like tame because there's like, we can talk about CrossFit and all sorts of uh, extreme home fitness videos, but that was sort of the uh, first one of its kind. Well, I remember distinctly being in Orange County, so here in Florida at the fire department, one of the real kind of outlying stations, it was a trailer, and then there was like a, a butler building where this, the uh, engine was, and going to look for our engineer for something, and he's out there doing P90X in the bay. And I have to say, aside from CrossFit, which I think has done so much for the fire service, if I was going to name something else, it would be P90X. So Tony absolutely, I think 
found a way to bridge that barrier to entry for a lot of people. Like I'm intimidated by these machines. I don't really know how to use these barbells or whatever. And with him, it's like, all right, find a space the size of a yoga mat pretty much and put somewhere to put your laptop or your TV and we'll just go through this together. So between, you know, as you said, the plyometrics or the yoga part or obviously the overall strength and conditioning part, I saw what was, as you said, initially a niche, um, uh, you know, workout video really permeate into the tactical professions and benefit a lot of first responders. That's really cool to hear. And I know that would mean a lot to him. He's really genuine. I mean, he's the guy that walks the walk, talks the talk. I mean, he's, he's become like a brother to me and like that guy eats, breathes and lives fitness. It's incredible what he can do at 64. I mean, put him up against a 22 year Marine and I'd give him a fight for his money. You know, he guy's in shape. So with the kind of unveiling of your leg and now probably a, you know, a new level of acceptance. So it kind of, to me, reminds me of Jonah Hill. I'm sure Jonah Hill in his mind was like, if I lose this weight, I'm not going to be the funny fat guy anymore. And <laughs> now he's yeah. this jujitsu athlete and everything and still working and still is funny. You didn't need the extra adipose tissue to be humorous. Um, so, but you, you have that unveiling around that same time. We go to war in the Middle East. We start getting all these veterans coming home, missing limbs. I watch the CrossFit arena especially really start blossoming some incredible adaptive athletes whether it's amputees or cerebral palsy or you know all these great humans that show other people that like themselves and then inspire people that are nothing like them that it's not you can't do it it's just okay how can i do it and you start seeing a genesis of prosthesis for example what was your observation of all this and what was your involvement in this as we started progressing and then the adaptive community really started becoming um had the exposure it deserves and the understanding it deserves it's funny i, I see some of these guys in crossfit you know nationally that compete in these ter tournaments and some of the guys now they're coming out and uh, being on screen and i feel like a relic you know i feel like uh these guys are unbelievable I mean, some of these athletes that are um, amputees, I see in the Paralympics or I see in CrossFit. I mean, they blow me away. <laughs> I was doing a CrossFit routine this morning. I know you and I, I talked before we got on here, but I joined a local gym down here and I joined because it was close to my house and it turned out to be a CrossFit gym. And, um, and so I've been recently starting to do some CrossFit and I got humbled this morning. My gosh. We did, I have a couple routines that are my Achilles heel. And uh, burpees are one of them. I had to do double unders. It was double under burpees and then pull-ups. And I was wiped out. Like I had to sit down by round seven. I was just <laughs> sucking wind. But I've seen some of these guys and they're just incredible. I mean, CrossFit's been great for a lot of people who are um, adaptive athletes and amputees. I feel like a relic, you know what I mean? I feel like I may have been there early on doing this P90X thing, but I've gotten passed up by some of these athletes that are just incredible to watch. So I love it. I mean, like I mentioned, growing up, I didn't have these mentors or see other people with prosthetics. And now you see people out there just out in the world, just everyone's just, just people, you know, that's what to me is the most important takeaway is that we're all just people. Like we don't have to be separated. We're cast in a certain way. And why can't we just all just accept the fact that everybody has a wooden leg and like, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it, except for to me, we're all just, we're everybody struggles with something. And uh, I love seeing these people doing CrossFit and just crushing it or uh, P90X, Tony Horton's thing. I mean, it's great. But I like, so 
I'll, I'll follow up with one thing. What I, I, what I'm currently doing with Tony is he has his um, program. So Tony is with a uh, powernationfitness.org and he has the four pillars of health, uh, fitness, nutrition, mindset. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the fourth mental, emotional, physical uh, supplements, nutrition. Yeah. Nutrition. Right. So he, so he on there, he has speakers. He has people that talk about what food to eat, the right proper food to eat. Um, he obviously does the workouts and then he has speakers come in and talk about mindsets. There's some Olympians, uh, some people that, you know, talk about how do you get over some of these hurdles to try to become the best person we can be. And so I, I tell my story. Uh, he has these, uh, Paragon events where people go to his house for a weekend and he filmed my last talk about overcoming growing up with a wooden leg and then going on to make super troopers and the challenges, not only that I had as a kid, but how that helped me uh, adapt as we're kind of talking about today, when I had to try to ski down that mountain, which was Hollywood, uh, getting from the top to the bottom, uh, should be the opposite, right? Um, so uh, that will be out on powernationfitness.org. And that's how I'm currently working with Tony is working with him on that, uh, that aspect of mindset and how important it is in having whole health. Like sure we can do pushups and pull-ups and all these kind of exercises all day, but um, it's really important to meditate, do the yoga, center ourselves, uh, keep, uh, you know, clear our mind and, um, and then nutrition, eating the right things and trying to be a better person uh, in many different ways and just uh, exercise. So P90X, like I said, is, is phenomenal. CrossFit is phenomenal. And, but those two are very different to each other. You know, what were some of the things that after doing P90X for so long that you found were different and therefore beneficial as well? I mean, there's no one way to eat. There's no one way to exercise. So what, what did it bring that you hadn't had before? Well, I, you know, it was interesting about P90X is I, I loved it, but I found it very hard to maintain for myself. I know a lot of people just took off and they did P90X2 and then 3. Uh, for me, I, I did it to get in shape for a movie, but I found that doing really, really hard workout 100 days in a row, I, I found I couldn't maintain it. But what I was able to do afterwards was find things that I love to do, like uh, join a softball group afterwards and like and, completely help with my softball game, which you think is not something that would be adaptable, but it was very helpful. Um, I loved biking. I'd hop on my bike, you know, in Southern California and just go off from Los Angeles all the way down to like Manhattan beach. Uh, it helped me stay in shape. So I was able to sort of like, and then I started, kept working out with Tony every Tuesday, Thursday after that for years. And we would just do push-ups and pull-ups and stuff like that. And I don't know, I was able to like, just help me uh, be active in the real world after that, just staying active. Now, with the adaptive world, I know you started working with DAV, Disabled Americans, Disabled American Veterans. I don't know why I struggle to say that. Um, talk to me about what you do with that organization. Yeah, I love them. They're great. Um, one of the things that we do is they have an adaptive sports clinic out in Colorado, Snowmass. So I went out there a couple of times and um, I've you know given my talk about overcoming adversity and perseverance. Uh, we did a screening of Super Troopers 2. Uh, I get on the mountain, I ski with them, and we have a good time and laugh. And I go down, you know, just go down the runs with the guys and we race. And uh, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, the guys have great spirit. Uh, I learn a ton from those guys and just enjoy the weekend. There's a group called Operation Enduring Warrior that I'm, you know, have 
been involved with and they take um, wounded warriors, so it can be military, it can be law enforcement, um, through obstacle courses. They do diving and skydiving too, but obstacle courses is the big one. They're working with Spartan. And I've seen it myself. One of my friends was a law enforcement officer that was shot multiple times, basically a murder, attempted murder in a parking lot of a grocery store where he went and got supplies for a family they'd just flown over from Puerto Rico. Um, I think it was during the hurricanes, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, anyway, so Drew and he, watching him at the beginning and watching him at the end, there was a complete metamorphosis from the, the self-doubt post-injury to holy shit, I can do these things. And I'm and as I'm going through this, that guy with the mask on has only got one arm and that guy's only got one leg because some of the master athletes that assist them are amputees themselves. So what are some of the the things that you've seen as you've taken some of these, you know, wounded warriors down these uh, winter sports? Yeah, I mean, the ideas of some of these people that are in wheelchairs or quadriplegics, paraplegics, and you get them on a mountain and the wind's in their face and they're skiing down a mountain. You know what I mean? It's not like a hill. It's like they're in Colorado at Snowmass, like going from the top of the mountain to the bottom. And I don't know, it lifts my heart a lot, just seeing people outside in nature and getting to experience that feeling of flying down a mountain. Um, I don't know. I like seeing the community, the aspect of like people that volunteer to help. Uh, there's some, some have the guides for certain, some of the sleds. I don't know, it just brings the community together. And like we talk about a lot of things, you know, it kind of takes a village to um, raise kids sometimes or, I don't know, it's nice to see everybody kind of come together in the spirit of community that we can all be together to help each other. I mean, I think the world would be a better place if we all just all got along. It'd be <laughs> nice if we weren't all divided and just worked together together. Yeah. Work together together. It's not a very good proper English, but. Yeah, no, it'd be nice to have a leader that unifies rather than divides, unlike the yeah. last two. But Absolutely. Um, all right, well, then you talked about it takes a village. I just want to make sure that we do cover this topic. So I know that you became a foster parent. So talk to me about what made you you know, decide to do that specifically and then educate us on the world of fostering. Because I think there's a lot of kind of urban myths about adoption and fostering. So what, are the, you know, what led you in there? And then you know, talk to me about that world. Um, my, my wife read an article in the paper that there's a great need in the community. Like talk about just trying to help out a little bit. There's this great need. And I don't know, I just, um, broke our hearts to think there were children out there that didn't have a place to live. Fostering the main goal is, um, to try to reunite children with their families. They do the best they can. And ultimately if, you know, if you can't reunite children with their families, they, there's an option to adopt, but the main goal of fostering is trying to reunite children with their families. So we currently foster, we, uh, you know, have this old house. We are renovating an old 1902 house. It's kind of a, uh, um, a big, a big house that was destroyed by a hurricane. My wife and I have been working out for a while. We finally got it back into shape and we're like, yeah, we got this cool old house, you know, and rooms, you know, why don't we see if there are some children that need a place to sleep and have a roof over their head. Uh, so we got certified. It was a long process, took a long time to get certified. You got to take training and go through it. But I don't know, it's just, uh, it's wonderful. If you have the space and the capacity in your life, I know a lot of people are busy, they're their own kids or don't have the time or energy. We just happen to be at a place in our life where we had the capability to try to help out the world a little bit. Uh, so we currently um, are been fostering some children in our house. That's amazing. Now, had you had kids prior to that? We had not, no. No, no. okay. 
beautiful yeah i think that's such an, an, a great opportunity for people as well i mean you hear of surrogacy and things but you know the foster and adoption world are as you said there's a big need from what i hear over and over again so what an incredible opportunity for someone that hasn't experienced parenting yet to be a part of that whole world yeah it's very rewarding uh i love i love driving the kids to school in the morning and you know just the joy that they come back after learning after a day of being in school and getting to socialize with their kids the other day they had an open house at the school and we got to go see their desk and their cubbies and stuff like that so we were very proud parents proud foster parents you know absolutely all right yeah. well i want to hit on one more topic before we go to some closing questions tacoma fd is obviously my profession now that you guys yeah, found your yeah. ways in so i know well, i don't know how involved are you in that project and then again what's the origin story of choosing that profession next Oh, funny. Yeah, uh, that is, uh, I'm not involved with Tacoma FD. That's a uh, Kevin and Steve side project. So uh, yeah, they that's their solo album. And uh, I, I think Kevin's uncle was a firefighter. And so he's been the technical consultant on it, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, that's sort of a, uh, a solo project, a solo record of uh, Kevin and Steve. But I, I do love it. You know, I obviously have great admiration for uh, firefighters out there for all you guys do. So I hope that uh, the comedy can be a, a nice piece of levity for everybody. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure. All right. Well, then the first of the closing questions, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Mm. I just finished a, a cool book um, on Monty Python huge Monty Python fan. Um, it's a book where it's all interviews. And so on the jacket cover, it says it's the closest thing to an autobiography. It's called Monty Python Speaks. And so it's just these paragraphs, these chunks of words from each of the five. Well, Graham, Graham's not on there because he had passed away, but um, big chunks of paragraphs from all the other four. And it was great. I mean, it talks about from the very beginning, this, how they started all the way to the very end where they currently are. But uh, it was like 500 pages, uh, very thorough. But I really thoroughly enjoyed that. It's called Monty Python Speaks. Have you crossed paths with any of the original cast? Oh, I wish. No. No, they're in a different world. I mean, they, at the end of the book, it was talking about they were asked to do a show at the, is it the O? What's the? Yeah, the o- O2 Arena, probably. O2 Arena, and they were going to do one night that sold out in like 48 seconds, and they ended up selling out. How many people are in that arena? I mean, it's where um, the FA Cup was, I believe. It's, uh, it used to be the Millennium Stadium, so it's it's a massive sports arena, basically. I'm afraid I'll throw the wrong number out, but it's gigantic. They sold out 10 nights in a row. I mean, the legacy that that group has is incredible. Did you watch them growing up or? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, because I, I just love the. I mean, I've always loved the ridiculous humor. It's always intelligent, ridiculous humor, you know, not just crazy slapstick. But um, yeah, I mean, they they were phenomenal. They're just so British. Like if you're a young British boy, I think you know, a lot of, you know, young British person, I think a lot of us were just exposed to certain things because there were only three channels when I was growing up. So it wasn't like you flicked through 100 cable channels. You know, right. you, you watched Indiana Jones and Star Wars at Christmas. You watched Monty Python. You watched all these things. So, yeah, Benny Hill. So you were exposed to, I think a lot of us were really just kind of fed the same things through the TV. But, yeah, Monty Python was absolutely as British as it comes. Yeah, it's a great book. How about you? What are you reading? 
Um, I am actually trying to write at the moment, so I'm not reading. I normally read a lot, but I'm trying to write uh, my second book, which will be a fiction, which I hope in a pipe dream that I can get it written well enough to become a TV show or a film because there's a message, there's, there's a very multiple messages in there that if articulated properly would have people thinking about stuff when they left, maybe maybe looking at people in their community differently than before they walked in this, the cinema. So that's pretty much it. So between the podcast and everything else, this massive library behind me, I haven't picked up any of them because I'm trying to actually funnel the other way now for a bit. Admirable. So, but we shall see. We shall see. Um, All right. Well, then the next question, what about a movie and or documentary that you love? Huh. Hmm. I love, I'm really into music documentaries. With Paul Soder, my comedy group, we do a um, a nacho (laughs) nacho and movie night and we pick a band and we watch a documentary about them. We make different type of nachos. Um, We haven't, done that in a while but uh, we had done several documentaries the police i really you know a documentary i loved recently was the Bee Gees. have you seen the Bee Gees documentary i haven't no most of my docs recently are on you know mental health or war or you know psychedelics yeah. so yeah it tends to be <laughs> themed so educate me it was great i don't know just uh, went all the way back to them it, when they were in england back in the 60s people didn't realize that they were as big as the beatles they sort of started as this young pop group in the 60s and then it wasn't until later that they kind of became you know icons in the disco world but they had a much um much more you know complex career than people might expect didn't well i think someone was telling me about this recently actually wasn't there quite a dark mental health element to their story as well i don't remember that part as much yeah i believe i want to say if you look in the history of you know, that family, I think there was, yeah. you know, some, some mental health challenges and some real struggles as they went through as well. Because, I mean, what do you think when you see them performing? It's all teeth and smiles and high voices, right. you know. But I think, actually, if you look at the backstory, a lot of them, you know, had some pretty challenging childhoods from what I understand. Yeah, yeah. I, I could see that. And, you know, Andy Gibb, obviously, I think, right? Something happened to Andy Gibb, which might have been involved with that. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Okay, well, then... Um, but then also I was watching the Beatles. The other great one I was watching was called Get Back the Beatles. It's like a marathon. Brilliant. Who was it? Didn't someone, was it Oliver Stone or someone just did a Beatles one not too long ago? Peter Jackson. Oh, Peter, that's right. Yeah. Was that the one you're talking about? Yeah. It's, okay. It's uh, eight hours. I think it's eight hours. Okay. It's eight or 10, but um, yeah, I've been on a Beatles kick recently. It's eight hours of uh, footage of them in a studio. It's fantastic. Brilliant. Yeah, he did one. Um, they shall not. They shall never grow old. They shall not grow old. Where they colorized the World War Two. Excuse me, World War One footage and put background noises and got actors to lip, match the the lip reading. You know, it was incredible. But I mean, this is this grainy old footage that they brought to life, and that was Peter Jackson as well. I heard that was terrific. It was amazing. I actually took my son to the movie theater to watch that. It was. Uh, oh, really? That was a moment. Yeah. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Like somebody I know or like? Yeah. I mean, if you know them even better, if you don't, then. (laughs) I don't know. I wasn't expecting that question. James. (laughs) Uh, I'll have to think about it. Somebody that would come on. 
Let me think about it. Can I get back to you on that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, just while you're thinking as well, I mean, if Steve or Kevin would ever want to come, I know Steve was on one of my friends, uh, Firefighter Magazines, Crackle. He did an interview for them, but I mean, oh, to nice. hear the Tacoma FD story and, you know, maybe some more of the Broken Lizard story would be amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Those guys have been uh, just with that show. I mean, they write, show run, act and edit. So trying to squeeze Broken Lizard into their schedule is um, it's been a challenge, but we make we're, we're like tonight we have a meeting. So we we find ways to find ways to make it work. And we shot a movie called Quasi last fall that will be out at the beginning of next year on Hulu. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and, you know, obviously the upcoming projects. What do you do to decompress? Oh, I love exercise in the morning. I uh, my my routine is I get up and I cook breakfast for the kids, uh, drop them off at school. And I love uh, hitting the gym. 830, 930 is uh, that's my sort of decompression. And then I and I get to work after that, do a lot of landscaping, uh, try to get to the beach, have some of the most beautiful beaches in the world here in Pensacola, Florida. Oh, I'll try to get there tomorrow. It's going to be 94, as you know. Uh, Florida is probably hot right now. Um, how? What's it? Can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. I uh, I always want... It's so freaking hot right now. Like, it's 94 out there. I don't know what the heat index is. But, like, July, August, September in Florida, I try barely to even go outside. And one of the things I think about all the time is how in the world is someone a firefighter in Florida? Honestly, my entire career, I've been, I would like to say, in very good physical shape. But it is the heat that cripples me on fires and things because our gear doesn't let us offset heat as well. But I think it goes back to you on the ski slope is it's not comfortable and we're in this environment now where I'm, you know, I've got my AC on here it's set at 75 and you know, there's a roof, so there's no sun in my eyes, you know, but you just have to be a firefighter in Florida. It's just that simple. The same way as you see those crazy store, uh, pictures of the, you know, the Northeast where they're flowing water and the hydrants are all frozen and, you know, there's ice down on this burning building, which makes no sense whatsoever. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing with the fire service is it is uncomfortable. It's really, really uncomfortable. And, you know, that's the 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 hard thing is like getting comfortable being uncomfortable, as they say, like constantly putting yourself in a bad place, having recovery days and rest, like you were saying, with, you know, 100 days of P90X. you got to have that, that downtime, that down, deregulation. But if you're not going to a horrible place, you know, ideally in gear, but now this whole thing with the gear and the cancer and everything, finding some other way to be brutally miserable in something similar to gear, um, it's going to be a real rude awakening if you have a prolonged structure fire or extrication or something in the florida heat because it's it's horrible and i worked in either here or in california southern california so hot as hell but just dry heat and and you know i'm from england i'm from a cold wet you know yeah. little island in the middle of the atlantic so it's just one of those things you just have to suck it up and you know constantly maintain that level of discomfort because as i am now once you retire you know, I've I've put the gear on a few times for fundraisers and stuff, but I'm always so glad that I don't have to wear it anymore because I've gone away from that discomfort now. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. That's a great. I love that. I'm gonna love that. That might be uh, something to leave on. It's it's something I've uh, had to live with my whole life. Exactly. But maybe that's how we all survive as we're uh, comfortable being uncomfortable. 
Well, and I think that discomfort, as you said earlier in the interview, is part of being human. I was talking to a retired police officer yesterday. Um, he was going through some food poisoning stuff, but he's a big holistic, you know, wellness coach now. And, you know, I was saying, but that's the problem is that people think that medications or whatever are going to stop you suffering. Like suffering is part of the human experience and it's okay to suffer and it builds some resilience. You don't want to suffer all the time. And if you can into that intelligently, healthily minimize some of the suffering, great. But when life is so comfortable normally, you have to, you know, allow it. Go mow the grass in the middle of the day in, in Florida. Yeah, it's going to be brutal and you're going to be drenched in sweat, but you're going to be a little bit stronger from it versus you just stay in your home and pay someone to mow your grass for you. Yep. Yep. It's that struggle that uh, allows us to grow our wings. Absolutely. Well, for people listening, um, I'm sure they're they're looking forward to to the book when it comes out. Obviously, learning about Quasi and Super Troopers Three and and Tony's project. So, where are the best places online for people to find you on on the web and then on social media? Great. Yeah, I uh, mostly probably well, I have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So, Eric Stolhansky, hard to spell, but if you put it in a Google, it mostly comes up. E R I K. Most people spell it C E R I K. Last name is S T O L H A N S K E. Swedish. Um, so yeah, I post. I'll post updates on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter about all upcoming projects. Fantastic. Well, and then your website is ericstolhansky.com. Have I got that right? Net. I think somebody had. Uh, I think I think it's ericstolhansky.net and. Uh, and it kind of has my information on there, but probably social media is where I update things the most. It's probably the same a-hole that's got behind the shield.com. Fuck that guy. <laughs> it's unbelievable they do that. Nuts. Well, Eric, I want to say... <laughs> I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. You know, it's such a diverse, you know, area of topics here from fostering to, you know, disabled veterans and everything in between. But as with everyone that comes on here, each of these stories, you know, there's so much to, to pull from someone's you know, journey through life. So I want to thank you for being so generous and coming on the podcast today. Thanks, James. Great talking to you. Appreciate it. Good interview. Good interview.